Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Today, I have a really incredible person on the show with me. Maybe you've heard of her or read her wildly popular books, or perhaps this is the first time you're meeting her. My guest for today's Love Stories episode is Julie Lifcott-Himes. Julie's work encompasses writing, speaking, teaching, mentoring, and activism. She is the New York Times bestselling author of How to Raise an Adult which gave rise to a much-loved TED Talk. Her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, which illustrates her experiences as a Black and biracial person in white spaces. Her third book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, has been called a groundbreakingly frank guide to adulthood. And yes, I have already given copies to both of our emerging adult kids. Julie holds degrees from Stanford, Harvard Law, and California College of the Arts. She currently serves on the boards of Black Women's Health Imperative, Narrative Magazine, and on the Board of Trustees at California College of the Arts. I really loved getting to know Julie through this conversation as she shared a collection of stories about her life, her career journey, and where she derives her passion and energy for creating a more equitable and just world. I'm really grateful for the work that she's doing, and I cannot wait for you to get to know her as well. Thank you, Julie, for being here with me today. Alexandra, thank you so much for having me. I've been following your work now for a while, but this is our first conversation. So thank you for saying yes. You know, there's tons of overlap in your work and mine around supporting emerging adults, understanding the dynamics between parents and kids as their kids step into adulthood. But I want to start us off by sharing a memory that I have of you, if that's all right with you. Mm. Wow. (laughs) I'm intrigued. 
Yes, please do. You had this New York Times bestselling book, How to Raise an Adult, that just crashed onto the scene in 2016. And then you had your third book called Your Turn, How to Become an Adult. And that one came out in 2021. And in between these books in 2018, you published a prose poetry memoir called Real American about your journey as a Black woman in the U.S. And I had a chance to sit front and center as you gave a book talk about Real American at the Zen Parenting Conference. And you held your notes in this leather-bound notebook in one hand, and you used your other hand to gesture and guide us through this talk. But what I will never forget is that you planted your feet on that stage and you did not move them for your entire talk. And I remember feeling like I didn't even take a breath the whole time you were talking. I was so captivated and you held this audience in a way that I really don't know if I've ever seen a speaker hold an audience that way. Like you were rooted and you held us. And I just want to start by celebrating you and celebrating your path and your journey that led you to a place where you can do what to do. That is uh, such a beautiful compliment and I'm taking it in. I'm remembering the Zen Parenting Conference. I, I remember that conference and being with Real American, which is my memoir on, on being Black and biracial in white spaces, is always a very vulnerable offering. I'm taking a lot of chances that people are going to carefully listen, are going to be with me, are going to stay with me, are going to go with me in the direction uh, my stories are trying to take them. And, you know, there's always the potential that somebody's not going to like what I'm saying or disagree with it. You know, I've had people say, uh, she's lying when I tell stories about my experience as a Black person. And it's always risky. Usually it goes quite well. And I do aim for a level of oratory, rhetoric, presentation that creates an experience. I want people to feel something. I'm hoping they will feel something they did not expect to feel. Maya Angelou said to us all, they won't remember what you said, but they'll remember how they felt when you said it. And that's what I'm going for every single time. I don't always hit the mark, but it sounds like I did that day at the Zen Parenting Conference when you were there. <laughs> you hit the mark just out of the ballpark. It was yeah, it was incredible. I, In getting ready for our conversation today, I watched your TED Talk again and watched your talk at the Sun Valley Writers Conference. And in, in both of those, I was struck by the almost performance quality of it. But you, do you have a performance history? <laughs> well, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do that? So, Where does that come from is, I guess, my question. Well, I think I was always a theater kid. I enjoyed theater as an elementary schooler and junior high kid, high school kid college kid, law school. I was even in our law school musical. So I've enjoyed theater and performance. I sang us also. I was drawn to words quite young. I think my family is a very verbal family. We tend to be extroverted. We tend to use words as currency for mattering, uh, which is not necessarily healthy, but I think it's true. I learned that, you know, I have to be able to hold my own in a verbal repartee in order to, you know, demonstrate my worth in my family. So I think that's part of it. But I was also drawn to the power of words to move people and really cut through a problem. If you can find the right words and put them in a good and compelling order, maybe you can really shift things. And I think that's what drew me to law, actually. I was really kind of enamored of the way you could wield words as a shield and as a sword and in a battle for justice. It's funny because now that I'm an author, which has been my life, I officially claimed the identity writer in 2012, published that first book in 2015. 
I know that many authors are introverts and they don't like the part of the job that engages people in public. And, you know, that's the part that's relatively easy for me. I mean, it's not to say I take it lightly. I always really prepare and I really summon the courage to get on stage and do the thing. But I do enjoy it. I think many authors find the writing process much more palatable than the audience piece. But I actually love the audience piece. I love humans. I love connecting with humans. I love trying to deliver an experience that is ultimately me saying, we are in this together. This is some shit, but it's our shit and we're going to deal with it. I'm going to hold space for you as you hold space for me by just being here. And yeah, I really do enjoy it. That's what, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was in your first book, How to Raise an Adult, you know, you said before we started taping, you said, I'm not a parenting expert. And I can see how with the success of that book, that was the lane that you were put in. But even in that book, you don't write the way that most parenting experts write. You really do say, listen, y'all, we're in some shit and let's look around and see how we got here. And I think the way you present this idea, which comes from your experience spending a decade at Stanford as the dean of freshman and undergraduate advising, you saw a kind of parenting that troubled you. But writing to parents, it's really dicey, right? We parents can get our hackles up pretty quickly and pretty easily. And then you have a way of calling us in, calling us forward. It's gentle, but it is, you don't cut us any corners, right? It's gentle, but you're like, we're here and we're looking at this. I guess maybe you do that because of what you just said, that you love humans and you're in it with us. But tell us more about how you do know, you- Yeah, I appreciate the characterization as gentle, but no corners cut or, you know, I'm really calling people in. I don't think I'm gentle. I think I'm blunt and frank, but compassionate. So I think the compassionate smoothing of the blunt frankness is maybe what you're calling gentle. Um, Look, I saw a problem on my campus that people were seeing on every campus at all levels, all tiers, public, private. Wasn't a Stanford thing that I was seeing. I was seeing a change. I was witnessing the effects of a changed childhood showing up as parents micromanaging young adults who could be serving in the army but instead were in college and the parents were acting like the kid was incapable. And this was not all my students, but every year it was a growing number who had parents accustomed to really still holding them on the other end of a leash, marching them down the path of life, guiding them here and there, pulling them away from challenge, pushing them toward opportunity. And I just thought, my God, what's going to happen to these young if they don't ever go off leash? How are they going to form a self? And I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a parenting expert. I'm an analytical person. I am a lawyer. I don't practice anymore, but I have that way of thinking. Identify, you know, the facts. What's going on here? What can we trace it back to historically? What theories are out there suggesting what might be at the root of this? So I pulled together a book to really tell a story about how childhood had changed and the effects of those changes on young people. And I also found myself rather bewildered to discover really seven years into my critique of other people, which began maybe I began critiquing this concept in 2002. By 2009, Mm. well before my book came out, I came home for dinner with my kids who were 10 and 8, and I leaned over my 10-year-old son's plate and began cutting his meat. And that is when I knew, oh, shit, I'm one of them. I'm not going to be able to let go of this guy at 18 because I'm, I've already handheld him too much. That is, I knew there are so many skills 
a kid has to develop between cutting food and being able to be independent and self-reliant at 18. And I just realized, okay, I am complicit in the problem. I see the future of it on my campus. What am I going to do in my house tonight with my 10 and 8-year-old to begin teaching them the various things, letting them have the life experiences that will allow them to learn, to do for themselves, to discover their own resourcefulness, to falter a bit and learn from it and be stronger and smarter next time. I had the evidence of in other people's grown sons and daughters of the unfortunate outcomes of overparenting and discovered to my horror that I was doing that same stuff in my own house. That's when I pivoted, I think, from being just blunt and frank and what's wrong with you people to like, wow, look what we're doing to our kids. And oh, hey, I've seen the future because I've worked with the grown up kids of other people. We must ward ourselves off the path of continuing to overparent our kids. Yeah. And the way that you you have this like very simple but powerful piece that I want to make sure because I know there are people listening now who are like, okay, so what do we do? What do we do? And you at some moments boil it down, although, you know, your book is long and generous and you take us all kinds of really important places. But there is this way that you boil it down to chores and love. (laughs) It gets, you know, there's a point at which it gets simple. Chores and love. Tell us about the chores and the love, please. Yeah. So this was the funny thing. I, I wanted to write a book on the problem and how the problem of helicopter parenting and, and the changes that were afoot in American society that led to us having this new manner of parenting. And I wanted to say why it was harming kids. And that's the book that I turned into my editor. And I got back all these notes like, where's the part of the book where you tell people what to do differently? Uh, and I said, I'm not that person. Mm-hmm. I can't tell people what to do differently. She said, you sure are. That's why we gave you this book contract. So you better <laughs> figure it out. So then I just was amassing other people's research and trying to really formulate an argument. And what it came down to for me, which is unique to me, I think, in terms of the conclusions is chores and love turn out to be the foundational elements required. Chores teach a kid to roll up their sleeves, pitch in, be useful, do a task regularly, even if it's not pleasant. Why? Because you're part of an ecosystem, a family. We all have to pull our weight The older you get, the more is required in order to make this family run. And that mindset, being taught young that you are expected to help out here, totally launches them into the future, into a workplace where a boss is going to want them to look around and see what needs to be done instead of sit by and wait or only take the choicest, most interesting, exciting assignments. So chores build a work ethic. Plus, in the immediate term, they help clean the house. Love is sort of obvious, but unconditional love is lacking in so many families today because if we're so worried about our kids' college options one day, we tend to behave in ways that are conditionally loving. Like we light up with joy and praise and pride when they're getting an A, when they're scoring super high on the particular test, when they've made it into the super fancy soccer team. You know, it's like, I love you when they, the kids feel that. They feel that love is a function of achievement or accomplishment. Unconditional love is I love you, period. I love you because you exist. I don't love you more. When you're achieving things, I don't love you less when things are going wrong, right? It's I love you, period. And that is, that's frankly missing in so many homes, sadly. And so chores and love, yes. And that's what I centered my TED talk around. I was fortunate enough. The book did well. TED reached out. Will you do a talk? I said, absolutely. Wanted to talk about (laughs) 
the challenges of oratory. Like they made me memorize this 15 minute <laughs> talk and I was terrified and just checked on the TED side. It's been viewed almost 7 million times, which blows me away. And chores and love is what I boiled my advice down to. You want to really set up your kid for success? Chores and love, let the rest of it figure itself out. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. You write in in the book about how it feels like showing up for your kids, doing all these things, making sure they're in the quote unquote right preschool, the right extracurriculars, the what you call the the checklist childhood feels like love. Being there feels like love. And I think the the framing of it as it actually what we're teaching them is conditional love. Like that's, I think, what holds the power to break through the mindset because the mindset is so seductive. It feels very confusing. Like all of the things we do, including sparing kids from chores so that they can do all these other things. So they have the time and energy for these things that we think count actually ends up reinforcing the idea that you're only worthy when you're achieving. So it's, you know, Michaeline Duclef, who's an NPR journalist, investigative journalist, wrote a beautiful book, Hunt, Gather, Parent. And in it, she took her two or three-year-old on her back in a backpack to visit people in the Arctic Circle, Inuit people, folks in Tanzania, Arabi people, and people in the Yucatan Peninsula. So indigenous cultures, very old cultures where kids are strong, kind, competent, uh, confident. And she went in search of why and learned so many lessons. And along the way, they were giving her feedback about how she was parenting her own kid, Rosie, who was on her back in this backpack, having tantrums and falling apart. One of the things McLean says is when kids contribute to the household by pitching in with food preparation, looking after little ones, preparing the fire, tending the fire, whatever it may be, it's almost like they're getting their family membership card. There's a tremendous feeling of belonging to the family by participating in its care and keeping. Beautiful. While on the subject of family, I wonder if we could spend a little bit of time talking about your family. We get these really powerful windows into your experiences of love in the family that you grew up in, in the family that you created in the book Real American. And one of the passages in Real American is, well, many of them are about your father, but there's one about your father that I had asked you ahead of time if you would perhaps indulge us in reading. How do you feel about sharing with us a little bit about? I would love to. Daddy's been, I'm 54. Daddy's been gone since I was 27. So he's been gone half my life. And uh, it's not a day goes by. I think that I don't think of him 
And in fact, a Forbes journalist, George Anders, wrote a review of this book and called it a love letter to my father, which I didn't realize was even a possible interpretation until that review came out. So, you know, as an author, you're always learning new things about your work through the reflections of others. Um, So here we go. This is from page 15 in Real American. I adored daddy. He was 50 when I was born and my childhood coincided with the heyday of his career, which began against all odds amidst the racial hatred of the segregated Jim Crow South. I was his last child of five, the product of his second marriage to my mother. And I knew from the way his eyes twinkled whenever he looked at me that he loved me no matter what. He gave me a variety of nicknames, old sport, knucklehead, which sounds crude to my grown ears, but then spoken in the butter of his baritone, it felt like melted love. He never had to call for me twice. I came running every single time. When I was little and skinned my knee, he'd pull me up onto his tall lap, kiss me, and ask with all seriousness how I was going to become Miss America with that scar. I didn't know then that no black woman had yet been crowned Miss America and that no black woman would be crowned Miss America until 1983. Instead, I heard in daddy's words that I was beautiful, perhaps the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. We all called him daddy, even my mother. He was formidable, commanding, gruff, loving, and funny. I hung on to his every word, whether it was, baby, bring me my cigarettes, or a well-placed retort to the news recited by the anchorman on TV. Daddy was the protagonist, the lead. Daddy was the son. Oh, it's so beautiful. That's the unconditional love. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, it's beautiful. This book is so brave and important and complicated. You let us stand with you in all different facets of who you are as a woman and a daughter and a mother and a professional. It's incredible. It's an incredible offering. Is, is it what's it been like to have it out in the world? Thank you for saying all that. Um, it's been one of the most joyful, rewarding aspects of my life to be the author of this book. I have been brought into community with so many other Black folk, people of color, biracial people. People have been otherized on the basis of some other aspect of their identity besides race. So the story arc really is the innocence of early childhood, plunging into this place I call self-loathing through progressive bad experiences and then emerging out of that into self-love. And the place of self-loathing was years, decades when I was outwardly successful, Stanford undergrad, Harvard Law School, corporate lawyer, university dean. But I was really by that point just trying to never be called the N-word again, as happened to me a couple hours north of you in Middleton, Wisconsin, when I was a senior in high school. And I think if I was to go back to that kid and pull her aside and say, you know what, one day you're not going to be the only one. You're going to have black friends. You're going to have people, you know, in your life who I was in an all white community in high school. I felt so different and lonely. And, you know, yet I was praised for not being black. I'm not being the bad kind of black. And, you know, so I wasn't around any black people to really know what the richness of blackness was. I was just trying not to be the stereotype. Some people called me the N-word. Some people said I was, you know, that sort of exception. And so it was really, that's what really led me to this place of self-loathing. Anyway, if I could tell her, if I could go back in time and pull my 17-year-old self aside and basically say what the Trevor Project says to queer kids, which is it gets better, I would do it because I was just in a heap of self-loathing. 
by the time I set off to college, didn't realize it until I was 40. This book has not only healed me and allowing me to dislodge these memories from their hiding places in my spirit and put them on the page. They no longer live in my body, which has been really healthy. But sharing them has brought me into community with people who will hold my hand and look me in the eye as tears fill their eyes. And they'll say, thank you for telling my story. You know, I'm, I'm putting voice to things that many, many people experience and have kept inside. And to just be able to hold that space, to have created something that is of use to other people on their journey, that's what brings me joy. The book became a passageway for you to be able to have these kinds of experiences. Like, I love that it both served you and it served us and it served the relationships with the people who, who have held your book in your hands. Like, what a miracle, right? What a, that's just incredible. As a therapist, of course, I was captivated by your story of your relationship with Mary Ellen, who is this consultant who comes to Stanford to help your department, working with your department. The story that you tell about the work you were able to do in your relationship with her, which was about so much more than the role you had at that time. Will you tell us about this acronym you came up with, DDE? So let me briefly set the scene. I'm on a team, a senior team at Stanford in undergraduate education. The vice provost is our boss. He's a white male engineering professor. My colleagues on my level are all white women. They all have PhDs in traditional liberal arts fields like French literature or what have you. And I am the youngest. I'm the only person of color. And I have the wrong degree in that I don't have a PhD. I have a JD from Harvard Law School, but I've never been so ashamed to only have a JD from Harvard Law School as I was working in academia where the PhD is really the crown prince of degrees and you're thought to be less analytical, less hardworking, less studied, less smart if you don't have a PhD. Ironically, the law professors also typically only have JDs. But anyway, so I'm, I have the wrong degree. I'm young and I'm, I'm of color. And this coach is brought in to help us improve our team dynamics. And I feel like I'm really crushing it. I feel like I'm doing a great job. And if she could just get these other people to focus on their personality problems, you know, and I'm being a little tongue in cheek here, but I really thought I was doing well and that I wasn't the problem. But of course, we all had a role to play in the team dynamic. And after a year of working together, she was ready to give me a 360 feedback, which boiled down to me in the eyes of my colleagues being too emotional and too aggressive, which is just so unoriginal as a response to black women. You know, we're told that these are stereotypes. And so I just couldn't believe it. But my coach, Mary Ellen, who is a Buddhist, a keto master, was like, I'm not here for the stereotype. You know, I agree with you, but let's focus on how you are in this team and are you able to achieve the things you want to? And I had to admit to her, like, you know, sometimes I get angry, sometimes I get frustrated, sometimes I get really excited. And then in this climate, my emotion or my feelings have become too much. And then I have to apologize. And no, I'm not having the impact I want with these people. And she taught me mindfulness. She taught me how to scan my body. You know, what is my bodily response? What is happening such that I think I might want to yell or stand up or exit the room or swear at somebody or just interrupt somebody? And the mindfulness practice allowed me to feel the triggers coming, lovingly ask myself what was going on and ask myself, what did I want to do about it? Do I want to speak or not? Is now the time or not? 
if now's the time, what is it I want to say? Or how is it that I want to respond? DDE was don't dwell, excel. This was the early stages of the mindfulness practice when I was just practicing noticing the trigger. So I'd be in a meeting with one person or multiple people. Something would happen that would make me frustrated or want to speak out or interrupt or contradict or what have you. And I was practicing not acting on it right away. My way of stopping myself was instead to just take that pen or pencil and write in the notes that I would be keeping for myself for the meeting, DDE, don't dwell, excel. And that was me saying, don't dwell on what's happening. Don't dwell on what they just might have done. I wouldn't give myself the same advice. Don't dwell in Excel. It would be don't dwell. You're okay. But I was so interested still in proving myself. My performance needs to be amazing every single time. So that was early stage of the of the process of really bringing mindfulness in almost as an operating system in my being that I could sort of check in with and say, how are we doing? What's going on? I get an instant answer. Like I'm frustrated. I'm mad. I'm sad. I'm scared. I feel shame. I feel insecure, whatever it is. I have that now running in the background all the time, but now is 15 years after I was first taught it. I can only imagine how complicated it must've been first to feel like the feedback you got from your colleagues lines up exactly with the gnarliest stereotype of Black women, then to have that feedback and then to work with it and to work with it in a way where the solution was not for you to lose your voice, but in fact, your solution was to become even more powerful to kind of like reach this new level of power, which is discernment of you get to be in charge of whether and when and how you use your voice. But I can imagine the first reaction being like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me that you're going to ask me to shift my voice or quiet my voice? Right. And this is where Mary Ellen becomes one of the people whose faces I will picture when I die, if there's any truth to that notion, because I trusted that she had my back and that she cared about me. I trusted that this was not going to reduce my voice or my impact in terms of what I was trying to do with my career, but rather increase my effectiveness. I had to go on a wing and a prayer along behind her, you know, believing that this methodology she was teaching me would in fact result in that. And it did. But in the beginning, just speaking less, being less loud, interrupting less, being less extroverted in the process of examining what's animating all of these reactions, I really did feel that I was pulling back and putting myself in the corner. But it didn't take long for me to learn that, wait a minute, when I speak less, choose my words and my moment then I can really have the kind of impact that I'm trying to have. (laughs) Oh, it's amazing, right? These people who just are our guides at different moments in our lives. Speaking of your voice and your impact, your next version of yourself is you are running for city council in Palo Alto. Like, Tell me about that. How is that going? Where does that come from? What do you want to share about that bold choice? Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I live here in Palo Alto, the heart of Silicon Valley. We have a seven-person council and three open seats this fall, November, and I'm running for one of them. There are seven people running, so it's going to be quite a fight. This is my response, frankly, to the fear that I have felt since the Trump takeover of America, where so many things that I've cherished and, frankly, taken for granted, like Roe versus Wade and um, voting rights and um, belief in the validity of elections and a sense of what are facts and what are lies, you know, fundamental, it's like a tectonic shift. It's like an earthquake has happened right in the middle of our society. And some of us are on the left side of that crack and some of us are on the right. And 
it's just devastating. So, of course, this is not news to anybody. I'm just saying my feelings have been really feelings of fear, temptations to flee. I've Googled, how do you get a Canadian passport? Which, you know, reflects my privilege as an upper middle class person who can contemplate packing up and leaving. I've also been just sort of blissfully a little depressed, I think, as can you be blissfully depressed? Like just in my backyard, writing, being on podcasts, speaking from Zoom in my backyard and not having to interact with the world in a pandemic. And I finally realized, wait a minute, we have seemingly intractable problems like America right here in Palo Alto, but maybe they're not intractable. Maybe if the right people work hard enough and are thoughtful enough and can broker some kind of compromise, we can address our biggest issue, which is we don't have enough houses. We have not enough houses. Our houses are expensive. Whether you're renting or buying, you can't afford to live here. Wait lists for housing are years long. Our children who are raised here can't afford to live here as young adults. Our seniors who can't afford to keep their homes up anymore have no place to go. It's a macroeconomic disaster. And I think we can solve it by building more housing. If only we could persuade the leaders who don't want more housing. So, you know, Palo Alto is not unique in this regard. I've decided to take this on and it's giving me life. Just running for council, learning all that I need to learn, you know, from going from being a civilian resident to like trying to earn people's votes. I'm back in grad school. I'm studying zoning issues and climate issues and, you know, ordinances and grand jury reports. And it's very stimulating. And I think win or lose, this will have been a growth edge for me. And I'm grateful because, look, Alexander, I intend to learn and grow until I take my last breath on this planet, because that's what it means to live. So this has rejuvenated me. This pursuit of an elected office to be of use to my fellow citizens has brought new life to me. And I'm grateful. It is such a powerful use of our rage, despair, horror, fear, right? You are using that to energize your learning and your, I mean, it's amazing. It's really quite inspiring. What does your husband, Dan, and your young adults, children, what are they saying to you about this? What's it like for them to watch you step into this? You know, now you're going to make me cry. Um, really? My, oh, gosh. My Well, my son is 23 and my daughter is 21. And they've both let me know that they're proud of me. And these are typically not the conversations that are had in this direction. Like as parents, we tell our kids, I'm proud of you for how you behaved, how you stepped up, how you, you know, how you, your character, right? Or an accomplishment. And to have my kids say this, I realize, I just think the world of both of them, I think they're both very wonderful people. So if I have done something to earn pride such that they're telling me, you know, mom, wow, I'm so proud of you. I'm honored and grateful. And meanwhile, Dan, we've been together since he was 19 and I was 20. That's 34 years. And I've thought about being a, a public servant for decades. And he always said, oh, I couldn't deal with that because he's quite introverted. He hates the whole meet and greet thing. Whereas I'm extroverted, like I'm just put me in a room with people and I'm going to make friends, you know, but I sat him down. I was like, I know you've said you would hate this. Here's why I feel like it's what I want to do. Can we talk about this? And he was like, you know what? I want you to be who you are. I will show up when you need me. I will be your arm candy. He said. And, um, you know, I'm here and I'll keep the home fires burning. I'll make sure everything you need is in the refrigerator. I'll make sure the laundry gets done. Please don't ask me to be too involved in the campaign, but I will make everything happen at home. And that is just gold and platinum and silver and rubies right there. 
It really is. And like, how wild is that? Like, as you guys are entering into year 32 of this marriage, right, he is now potentially becoming married to a political figure. Like, it's just the marriage continues to grow and evolve to meet the two people that are in the marriage, right? Like, he didn't know that, you know, as he met you at the aisle and shared vows with you, he didn't know. Uh-uh. He didn't. And you know what? We've changed in so many ways and we're very public about this. You know, we both realized about 20 years into our marriage that we were bisexual, attracted to people of all genders, re- attracted to people regardless of gender. We were able to talk about that with each other and be deeply curious and interested in each other's journey and whatnot. And, you know, this is quite a marriage. Um, the Dan is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I am so grateful for him. And let me say, in stepping up around the house, now, he's always been the house parent at home. He's worked part-time since our kids were born. My mother also looked after our kids. I've always had the busy full-time career. It's just now it's public office, which requires more of a, a daily investment and a public face. And so he's continuing to be himself. He's an artist. He's such a kind, generous human. And I absolutely adore him. And I feel adored by him. And the fact that he brings tears to my eyes after 34 years, it's just like, ah, I feel so fortunate. Oh, you write about Dan throughout Real American. Will you read this? Okay, so it's page 262 and onward. So Dan is white and Jewish, and I am, as we've established, black. My mom's white, my dad's black. And remember, this book is about race, and we're nearing the end of this book, listeners. This white man I sleep with, I love. This white man who loved my black hair before I did, I love. This white man to whom I gave Sawyer and Avery, I love. This white man without whom I would not have Sawyer and Avery, I love. I love how he worked part-time his entire career so as to be the primary parent of our children. How he looks with such pride upon Sawyer and Avery. How he develops his consciousness about the black experience by reading, listening, watching, informing himself so he can be the best possible white father to our black son. How he loves his daughter just as magnificently as my daddy loved me. How he loved me when I did not yet love myself and gazes at me with limitless love still. One of the um, pieces that you write about, and also there's an article on today.com where you write about this, you know, having biracial children, you and Dan, daughter Avery is more phenotypically white and your son Sawyer is more phenotypically black. And there's just so much nuance around that, around how, you know, that's, that's what you're addressing here when you say the white father to our black son. Of course, both of your children are biracial, but it has taken on different elements and dynamics based on, you know, how the world codes them and reads them. That's right. And by this point in the book, I've kind of laid that out. So yes, my daughter identifies as multiracial and my son identifies as black. And I think for him, that's in response to how he is perceived by the world. And for her, that is an intentional claiming of all of her ancestry, regardless of what people may presume about her by looking at her. Mm-hmm. And you and Dan have, have needed to grow with them, right? And to, and figure out how to support their emerging and unfolding selves, even as your, you know, selves continue to emerge and unfold, as, as is the case in all of our families. Mm-hmm. We had talked before we started about you reading the kind of pair of essays that are at the very end of your book. Race is woven in and out of our conversation. But this last piece, to me, just captures so beautifully your deep love of humanity, your connection to spirituality, 
how do you feel about reading those two as we close? Yeah, I would love to. Right. So thank you for the opportunity. I always end my readings on Real American with these two passages. So thank you for honing in on the, the significance of them. As I've said, the arc of the book is from the innocence of youngest childhood. It's not an arc like a mountain. It's a arc that goes, I descend into a pit from innocence to self-loathing and back out to self-love in the era of Black Lives Matter. So this is now toward the very end of the book where I say, page 235 and then 237, you think of given the choice any of us would have asked to be born Black in America? You think we want to be the object of your evident fear as you pass us on streets and crowd away from us on elevators? In the wake of the Zimmerman verdict, the artist Questlove wrote so hauntingly about this. He described himself as a six foot two, 300 pound black man and pleaded, I mean, what can I do? I have to be somewhere on earth, correct? Correct. And now page 237. But maybe God did give us a choice. Maybe he gathered a group of souls and asked for volunteers. Now, who wants to go down there and inhabit a black or brown body? Who wants to take that on? Who wants to live a life in America where you may be treated like the scum of the earth? Who will walk among white people and be their opportunity to learn compassion? And then the bravest souls looked around at each other and raised their hands. <sighs> Lord, when I do this in front of an audience, I am glancing at the black and brown people that I can see in the audience as if to say, imagine a mythology where... You chose this, where you chose to come and inhabit darker skin, knowing that the ideology for 500 years has been, you are less than, you are not deserving of dignity, kindness, opportunity, right? Imagine if this was a soul level choice for the larger purpose of teaching and leveling up the human community. And I land my glance on people with the utmost respect. And as I play with this concept and it is just, uh, I don't even have words to describe what it does for me. Um, it's imagining a different reality. And it's beautiful to be transported to that place if for a moment. I'm glad that you raised your hand. <laughs> Let me say, like, I'm the biracial kid. I'm light skinned. I got a white mother. I've got all this white adjacency, right? I know that what I've experienced is nothing compared to people who are darker, have less money, less education than I. I was raised middle class by college educated parents and um, have had, in that sense, a very different Black experience than is typical. But yet, the book is making the point, if Julie, with her privilege, has been, you know, treated in these ways, imagine how it must be for people who have less of the various forms of privilege that I've alluded to. You are a living, breathing example of what it means to use, to wield privilege. Like, even you describe on the Real American Book Tour, you every city you went to, you found the young Black and biracial spoken word artists. And you were like, okay, open for me. Three minutes, do your thing. Like that is like in everything you do and everything you do. It was so amazing. And I think, Alexandra, I thought I was doing the right thing, giving them opportunity. And I was, I mean, I, that was the purpose, but I didn't realize how fucking amazing they would be so that their <laughs> presence enhanced the overall offering that I was trying to present to the community. So what a gift it ended up being to me to be in the presence of these youth. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that we did this. If this is a conversation that's introducing people to you for the first time, where do you want people to go next? Like, How do people 
dive in more with you, get closer to you, learn more with you? What's the next step? You know, I'm a nonfiction writer. I think that's obvious. I do a, a weekly blog of my vulnerable observations about life, about my life and the world around me. It's called Julie's Pod. And you could Google Julie's Pod. The formal URL, which you can stick in the show notes, is jlithcotthames.bulletin.com. But anyone listening, if you want to access my stuff, just Google Julie's Pod. Join that community. You can respond in the comments right there online or if I share it on social you can call a hotline that I have associated with it, one eight seven seven. hi julie Just goes to a voicemail. Tell me what's on your mind if you're not comfortable saying what you think attached to your name on social media, which I totally get. Um, my website is julielithcotthames.com and I'm jlithcotthames everywhere on social media. So follow me on whatever social media platform is your preferred platform of choice. I love to engage and connect. So please feel free to say what's on your mind. Mm, beautiful. And we're going to have links to all of that in the show notes, along with links to your books in the show notes. Love it. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julie, for sharing your wonderful story on reimagining love. I'm so inspired by the expansiveness of Julie's work, and I can't wait to see what she does next. You can find links to Julie's books and blog in our show notes. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.